Section 5 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Johnson at a Dame School. He was first taught to read English by Dame Oliver, a widow who kept a school for young children in Lichfield. Footnote Johnson, writing of Addison's schoolmaster, says, not to name the school or the masters of men illustrious for literature is a kind of historical fraud by which honest fame is injuriously diminished i would therefore trace him through the whole process of his education End of footnote. he told me that she could read the black letter and asked him to borrow for her from his father a bible in that character when he was going to oxford she came to take leave of him brought him in the simplicity of her kindness a present of gingerbread and said he was the best scholar she ever had he delighted in mentioning this early compliment adding with a smile that this was as high a proof of his merit as he could conceive his next instructor in english was a master whom when he spoke of him to me he familiarly called tom brown who he said published a spelling-book and dedicated it to the universe but i fear no copy of it can now be had footnote neither the british museum nor the bodleian library has a copy End of footnote. Litchfield school he began to learn latin with mr hawkins usher or undermaster of lichfield school a man said he very skilful in his little way footnote when we learned propria quemaribus we were examined in the accidents particularly we formed verbs that is went through the same person in all the moods and tenses this was very difficult to me and i was once very anxious about the next day when this exercise was to be performed in which i had failed till i was discouraged my mother encouraged me and i proceeded better when i told her of my good escape we often said she dear mother come off best when we are most afraid she told me that once when she asked me about forming verbs i said i did not form them in an ugly shape you could not said she speak plain and i was proud that i had a boy who was forming verbs these little memorials soothe my mind End of footnote. with him he continued two years footnote. this was the course of the school which i remember with pleasure for I was indulged and caressed by my master, and I think really excelled the rest. End of footnote. And then rose to be under the care of Mr. Hunter, the headmaster, who, according to his account, was very severe and wrong-headedly severe. He used, said he, to beat us unmercifully, and he did not distinguish between ignorance and negligence for he would beat a boy equally for not knowing a thing as for neglecting to know it he would ask a boy a question and if he did not answer it 
he would beat him without considering whether he had an opportunity of knowing how to answer it for instance he would call up a boy and ask him latin for a candlestick which the boy could not expect to be asked now sir if a boy could answer every question there would be no need of a master to teach him johnson's schoolfellows it is however but justice to the memory of mr hunter to mention that though he might err in being too severe the school of lichfield was very respectable in his time Footnote. johnson said of hunter abating his brutality he was a very good master steele in the spectator number one hundred and fifty seven two years after johnson's birth describes these savage tyrants of the grammar schools the boasted liberty we talk of he writes is but a mean reward for the long servitude the many heartaches and terrors to which our childhood is exposed in going through a grammar school no one who has gone through what they call a great school but must remember to have seen children of excellent and ingenuous natures as has afterwards appeared in their manhood i say no man has passed through this way of education but must have seen an ingenuous creature expiring with shame with pale looks beseeching sorrow and silent tears throw up his honest eyes and kneel on his tender knees to an inexorable blockhead to be forgiven the false quantity of a word in making a latin verse likely enough johnson's roughness was in part due to this brutal treatment for steele goes on to say it is wholly to this dreadful practice that we may attribute a certain hardiness and ferocity which some men though liberally educated carry about in all their behaviour to be bred like a gentleman and punished like a malefactor must as we see it does produce that illiberal sauciness which we see sometimes in men of letters End of footnote. the late dr taylor prebendary of westminster who was educated under him told me that he was an excellent master and that his ushers were most of them men of eminence that holbrook one of the most ingenious men best scholars and best preachers of his age was usher during the greatest part of the time that johnson was at school Footnote. johnson described him as a peevish and ill-tempered man and not so good a scholar or teacher as taylor made out once the boys perceived that he did not understand a part of the latin lesson another time when sent up to the upper master to be punished they had to complain that when they could not get the passage the assistant would not help them End of footnote. then came haig of whom as much might be said with the addition that he was an elegant poet Haig was succeeded by Green, afterwards Bishop of Lincoln, whose character in the learned world is well known. Footnote one of the contributors to the Athenian Letters, see Gentleman's Magazine. End of footnote. 
in the same form with johnson was congreve who afterwards became chaplain to archbishop bolter and by that connection obtained good preferment in ireland footnote johnson describes him as one who does not get drunk for he is a very pious man but he is always muddy End of footnote. he was the younger son of the ancient family of congreve in staffordshire of which the poet was a branch his brother sold the estate there was also low afterwards canon of windsor footnote a tradition had reached johnson through his schoolfellow andrew corbett that addison had been at the school and had been the leader in a barring out garrick entered the school about two years after johnson left according to garrick's biographer tom davies hunter was an odd mixture of the pedant and the sportsman happy was the boy who could slyly inform his offended master where a covey of partridges was to be found this notice was a certain pledge of his pardon lord campbell in his lives of the chief justices says hunter is celebrated for having flogged seven boys who afterwards sat as judges in the superior courts at westminster at the same time among these were chief justice wilmot lord chancellor northington sir t clark master of the rolls chief justice wills and chief baron parker it is remarkable that although johnson and wilmot were several years class-fellows at lichfield there never seems to have been the slightest intercourse between them in after-life but the chief justice used frequently to mention the lexicographer as a long lank lounging boy whom he distinctly remembered to have been punished by hunter for idleness lord campbell blunders here northington and clark were from westminster school the schoolhouse famous though it was was allowed to fall into decay a writer in the gentleman's magazine in seventeen ninety four says that it is now in a state of dilapidation and unfit for the use of either the master or boys End of footnote. mr hunter indeed johnson was very sensible how much he owed to mr hunter mr langton one day asked him how he had acquired so accurate a knowledge of latin in which i believe he was exceeded by no man of his time he said my master whipped me very well without that sir i should have done nothing he told mr langton that while hunter was flogging his boys unmercifully he used to say and this i do to save you from the gallows johnson upon all occasions expressed his approbation of enforcing instruction by means of the rod Footnote. johnson's observation to dr rose on this subject deserves to be recorded rose was praising the mild treatment of children at school at a time when flogging began to be less practised than formerly but then said johnson they get nothing else and what they gain at one end they lose at the other burning End of footnote. i would rather 
said he, have the rod to be the general terror to all to make them learn, then tell a child, if you do thus or thus, you will be more esteemed than your brothers or sisters. The rod produces an effect which terminates in itself. A child is afraid of being whipped and gets his task and there's an end on't whereas by exciting emulation and comparisons of superiority you lay the foundations of lasting mischief you make brothers and sisters hate each other Footnote. this passage is quoted from boswell's hebrides august the twenty fourth seventeen seventy three mr boyd had told johnson that lady errol did not use force or fear in educating her children whereupon he replied sir she is wrong and continued in the words of the text gibbon in his autobiography says the domestic discipline of our ancestors has been relaxed by the philosophy and softness of the age and if my father remembered that he had trembled before a stern parent it was only to adopt with his son an opposite mode of behaviour lord chesterfield writing to a friend on october the eighteenth seventeen fifty two says pray let my godson never know what a blow or a whipping is unless for those things for which were he a man he would deserve them such as lying cheating making mischief and meditated malice End of footnote. When Johnson saw some young ladies in Lincolnshire who were remarkably well behaved owing to their mother's strict discipline and severe correction, footnote, Johnson, however, hated anything that came near to tyranny in the management of children, writing to Mrs. Thrale, who had told him that she had on one occasion gone against the wish of her nurses, he said, that the nurses fretted will supply me during life with an additional motive to keep every child as far as is possible out of a nurse's power a nurse made of common mould will have a pride in overcoming a child's reluctance there are few minds to which tyranny is not delightful power is nothing but as it is felt and the delight of superiority is proportionate to the resistance overcome. End of footnote. He exclaimed in one of Shakespeare's lines, a little varied, Rod, I will honour thee for this thy duty. Footnote. Sword, I will hallow thee for this thy deed. Henry the Sixth, Part Two, Act Four, Scene Ten john wesley's mother writing of the way she had brought up her children boys and girls alike says when turned a year old and some before they were taught to fear the rod and to cry softly by which means they escaped abundance of correction they might otherwise have had wesley's journal end of footnote johnson a king of men that superiority over his fellows which he maintained with so much dignity in his march through life was not assumed from vanity and ostentation but was the natural and constant effect of those extraordinary powers of mind of which he could not but be conscious by comparison 
the intellectual difference which in other cases of comparison of characters is often a matter of undecided contest being as clear in his case as the superiority of stature in some men above others johnson did not strut or stand on tiptoe he only did not stoop from his earliest years his superiority was perceived and acknowledged Footnote. there dwelt at lichfield a gentleman of the name of butt to whose house on holidays he was ever welcome the children in the family perhaps offended with the rudeness of his behaviour would frequently call him the great boy which the father once overhearing said you call him the great boy but take my word for it he will one day prove a great man hawkins's johnson page six end of footnote he was from the beginning greek anaxandron a king of men his schoolfellow mr hector has obligingly furnished me with many particulars of his boyish days and assured me that he never knew him corrected at school but for talking and diverting other boys from their business he seemed to learn by intuition for though indolence and procrastination were inherent in his constitution whenever he made an exertion he did more than any one else in short he is a memorable instance of what has been often observed that the boy is the man in miniature and that the distinguishing characteristics of each individual are the same through the whole course of life his favourites used to receive very liberal assistance from him and such was the submission and deference with which he was treated such the desire to obtain his regard that three of the boys of whom mr hector was sometimes one used to come in the morning as his humble attendants and carry him to school one in the middle stooped while he sat upon his back and one on each side supported him and thus he was born triumphant such a proof of the early predominance of intellectual vigour is very remarkable and does honour to human nature talking to me once himself of his being much distinguished at school he told me they never thought to raise me by comparing me to any one they never said johnson is as good a scholar as such a one but such a one is as good a scholar as johnson and this was said but of one but of low and i do not think he was as good a scholar johnson's tenacious memory he discovered a great ambition to excel which roused him to counteract his indolence he was uncommonly inquisitive and his memory was so tenacious that he never forgot anything that he either heard or read mr hector remembers having recited to him eighteen verses which after a little pause he repeated verbatim varying only one epithet by which he improved the line 
he never joined with the other boys in their ordinary diversions his only amusement was in winter when he took a pleasure in being drawn upon the ice by a boy barefooted who pulled him along by a garter fixed round him no very easy operation as his size was remarkably large his defective sight indeed prevented him from enjoying the common sports and he once pleasantly remarked to me how wonderfully well he had contrived to be idle without them lord chesterfield however has justly observed in one of his letters while earnestly cautioning a friend against the pernicious effects of idleness that active sports are not to be reckoned idleness in young people and that the listless torpor of doing nothing alone deserves that name Footnote. you should never suffer your son to be idle one minute i do not call play of which he ought to have a good share idleness but i mean sitting still in a chair in total inaction it makes boys lazy and indolent End of, footnote. of this dismal inertness of disposition johnson had all his life too great a share mr hector relates that he could not oblige him more than by sauntering away the hours of vacation in the fields during which he was more engaged in talking to himself than to his companion his fondness for romances dr percy footnote the author of the reliques end of footnote the bishop of dromore who was long intimately acquainted with him and has preserved a few anecdotes concerning him regretting that he was not a more diligent collector informs me that when a boy he was immoderately fond of reading romances of chivalry and he retained his fondness for them through life so that adds his lordship spending part of a summer footnote the summer of seventeen sixty four end of footnote at my parsonage house in the country he chose for his regular reading the old spanish romance of felix martel hircania in folio which he read quite through footnote. johnson writing of paradise lost book two line eight seven nine says in the history of don balianus when one of the knights approaches as i remember the castle of brandesire the gates are said to open grating harsh thunder upon their brazen hinges johnson's works volume seventy six where he had with him upon a jaunt il palmerino d'inglaterra prior says of burke that a very favourite study as he once confessed in the house of commons was the old romances palmerin of england and dolberianus of greece upon which he had wasted much valuable time End of footnote. yet i have heard him attribute to these extravagant fictions that unsettled tone of mind which prevented his ever fixing in any profession stourbridge school seventeen twenty five sixteen after having resided for some time at the house of his uncle cornelius ford 
Footnote. Hawkins says that the uncle was Dr. Joseph Ford, a physician of great eminence. The son, Parson Ford, was Cornelius. In Boswell's Hebrides, October the 15th, 1773, Johnson mentions an uncle who very likely was Dr. Ford. In Notes and Queries, it is shown that by the will of the widow of Dr. Ford, the Johnsons received £200 in 1722. On the same page, the Ford pedigree is given, where it is seen that Johnson had an uncle Cornelius. It has been stated that Johnson was brought up by his uncle till his fifteenth year. I understand Boswell to say that Johnson, after leaving Lichfield School, resided for some time with his uncle before going to Starbridge. End of footnote. Johnson was, at the age of fifteen, removed to the school of Starbridge in Worcestershire, of which Mr. Wentworth was then master. This step was taken by the advice of his cousin, the Reverend Mr. Ford, a man in whom both talents and good dispositions were disgraced by licentiousness. Footnote. He is said to be the original of the parson in Hogarth's Modern Midnight Conversation, Boswell. In the life of Fenton, Johnson describes Ford as a clergyman at that time too well known, whose abilities, instead of furnishing convivial merriment to the voluptuous and dissolute, might have enabled him to excel among the virtuous and the wise. Writing to Mrs. Thrale on July the 8th, 1771, he says, I would have been glad to go to Hagley, close to Starbridge, for I should have had the opportunity of recollecting pastimes and wandering per montes notos et flumina nota, of recalling the images of sixteen, and reviewing my conversations with poor Ford, End of footnote. but who was a very able judge of what was right. At this school he did not receive so much benefit as was expected. It has been said that he acted in the capacity of an assistant to Mr. Wentworth in teaching the younger boys. Mr. Wentworth, he told me, was a very able man, but an idle man, and to me very severe. But I cannot blame him much. I was then a big boy. He saw I did not reverence him, and that he should get no honour by me. I had brought enough with me to carry me through, and all I should get at his school would be ascribed to my own labour, or to my former master. Yet he taught me a great deal. He thus discriminated to Dr. Percy, Bishop of Dremore, his progress at his two grammar schools. At one I learnt much in the school, but little from the master. In the other I learnt much from the master, but little in the school. The bishop also informs me that Dr. Johnson's father, before he was received at Starbridge, applied to have him admitted as a scholar and assistant to the Reverend Samuel Lee, M.A., headmaster of Newport School in Shropshire, a very diligent good teacher at that time in high reputation, under whom Mr. Hollis is said in the memoirs of his life, to have been also educated. Footnote. 
as was likewise the Bishop of Dromore many years afterwards. Boswell. End of footnote. This application to Mr. Lee was not successful, but Johnson had afterwards the gratification to hear that the old gentleman, who lived to a very advanced age, mentioned it as one of the most memorable events of his life, that he was very near having that great man for his scholar. He remained at Starbridge little more than a year, and then returned home, where he may be said to have loitered for two years in a state very unworthy his uncommon abilities. He had already given several proofs of his poetical genius, both in his school exercises and in other occasional compositions. Of these I have obtained a considerable collection by the favour of Mr. Wentworth, son of one of his masters, and of Mr. Hector, his schoolfellow and friend, from which I select the following specimens. Johnson's Youthful Compositions Translation of Virgil, Pastoral One Melibius Now, Tartyrus, you supine and careless lad, play on your pipe beneath this beechen shade, while wretched we about the world must roam and leave our pleasing fields and native home. Here, at your ease, you sing your amorous flame, and the wood rings with Amaryllis' name. To Tyrus. Those blessings, friend, a deity bestowed, for I shall never sing him less than God. Oft on his altar shall my firstlings lie, their blood the consecrated stones shall die. He gave my flocks to graze the flowery meads, and me to tune at ease the unequal reeds. Melibius. My admiration only, I expressed, no spark of envy harbours in my breast, that when confusion o'er the country reigns, to you alone this happy state remains. Here I, though faint myself, must drive my goats far from the ancient fields and humble coats. This guess, I lead, who left on yonder rock two tender kids, the hopes of all the flock, had we not been perverse and careless grown, this dire event by omens was foreshown. Our trees were blasted by the thunderstroke, and left-hand crows from an old hollow oak foretold the coming evil by their dismal croak. Translation of Horace, Book One, O Twenty-Two. The man, my friend, whose conscious heart with virtue's sacred ardour glows, nor taints with death the envenomed dart, nor needs the guard of Moorish bows. Though Scythia's icy cliffs he treads, or horrid Afric's faithless sands, or where the famed Hydaspes spreads his liquid wealth o'er barbarous lands, for while by Chloe's image charm, too far in Sabine woods I strayed, me singing, careless and unarmed, a grisly wolf surprised, and fled. No savage more portentous stained Apulia's spacious wilds with gore, no fiercer Juba's thirsty land, dire nurse of raging lions bore. 
place me where no soft summer gale among the quivering branches sighs where clouds condensed forever veil with horrid gloom the frowning skies place me beneath the burning line a clime denied to human race i'll sing of chloe's charms divine her heavenly voice and beauteous face translation of horace book two ode nine clouds do not always veil the skies nor showers immerse the verdant plain nor do the billows always rise or storms afflict the ruffled main nor valgius on the armenian shores do the chained waters always freeze not always furious boreas roars or bends with violent force the trees but you are ever drowned in tears for misty's dead you ever mourn no setting soul can ease your care but finds you sad at his return the wise experienced grecian sage mourned not antilochus so long nor did king priam's hoary age so much lament his slaughtered son leave off at length these woman's sighs augustus's numerous trophies sing repeat that prince's victories to whom all nations tribute bring nifates rolls an ambler wave at length the undaunted scythian yields content to live the roman slave and scarce forsakes his native fields translation of part of the dialogue between hector and andromache from the sixth book of homer's iliad she ceased then godlike hector answered kind his various plumage sporting in the wind that post and all the rest shall be my care but shall i then forsake the unfinished war how would the trojans brand great hector's name and one base action sully all my fame acquired by wounds and battles bravely fought for how my soul abhors so mean a thought long since i learned to slight this fleeting breath and view with cheerful eyes approaching death the inexorable sisters have decreed that priam's house and priam's self shall bleed the day will come in which proud troy shall yield and spread its smoking ruins o'er the field yet hecuba's nor priam's hoary age whose blood shall quench some grecian's thirsty rage nor my brave brothers that have bit the ground their souls dismissed through many a ghastly wound can in my bosom half that grief create as the sad thought of your impending fate when some proud grecian dame shall tasks impose mimic your tears and ridicule your woes beneath hyperia's waters shall you sweat and fainting scarce support the liquid weight then shall some argive loud insulting cry behold the wife of hector guard of troy tears 
at my name shall drown those beauteous eyes and that fair bosom heave with rising sighs before that day by some brave hero's hand may i lie slain and spurn the bloody sand to a young lady on her birthday footnote mr hector informs me that this was made almost impromptu in his presence boswell end footnote this tributary verse receive my fair warm with an ardent lover's fondest prayer may this returning day for ever find thy form more lovely more adorned thy mind all pains all cares may favouring heaven remove all but the sweet solicitudes of love may powerful nature join with grateful art to point each glance and force it to the heart or then when conquered crowds confess thy sway when even proud wealth and prouder wit obey by fair be mindful of the mighty trust alas tis hard for beauty to be just those sovereign charms with strictest care employ nor give the generous pain the worthless joy with his own form acquaint the forward fool shown in the faithful glass of ridicule teach mimic censure her own faults to find no more let coquettes to themselves be blind so shall belinda's charms improve mankind the young author footnote this he inserted with many alterations in the gentleman's magazine seventeen forty three boswell the alterations are not always for the better thus he alters and the long honours of a lasting name into and fired with pleasing hope of endless fame when first the peasant long inclined to roam forsakes his rural sports and peaceful home pleased with the scene the smiling ocean yields he scorns the verdant meads and flowery fields then dances jocund o'er the watery way while the breeze whispers and the streamers play unbounded prospects in his bosom roll and future millions lift his rising soul in blissful dreams he digs the golden mine and raptured sees the new-found ruby shine joys insincere thick clouds invade the skies loud roar the billows high the waves arise sickening with fear he longs to view the shore and vows to trust the faithless deep no more so the young author panting after fame and the long honours of a lasting name entrusts his happiness to humankind more false more cruel than the seas or wind toil on dull crowd in ecstasies he cries for wealth or title perishable prize while i those transitory blessings scorn secure of praise from ages yet unborn this thought once formed all counsel comes too late he flies to press and hurries on his fate swiftly 
he sees the imagined laurels spread and feels the unfading wreaths around his head warned by another's faith vain youth be wise those dreams were settles once and ogilby's footnote settle was the last of the city poets here swells the shelf with ogilby the great dunciant book one nine one four one end of footnote the pamphlet spreads incessant hisses rise to some retreat the baffled writer flies when no sour critic snarl no sneers molest safe from the tart lampoon and stinging jest there begs of heaven a less distinguished lot glad to be hid and proud to be forgot epilogue intended to have been spoken by a lady who was to personate the ghost of hermione Footnote. some young ladies at lichfield having proposed to act the distressed mother johnson wrote this and gave it to mr hector to convey it privately to them boswell End of footnote. ye blooming train who give despair or joy bless with a smile or with a frown destroy in whose fair cheeks destructive cupids wait and with unerring shafts distribute fate whose snowy breasts whose animated eyes each youth admires though each admirer dies whilst you deride their pangs in barbarous play unpitying see them weep and hear them pray and unrelenting sport ten thousand lives away for you ye fair i quit the gloomy plains where sable night in all her horror reigns no fragrant bowers no delightful glades receive the unhappy ghosts of scornful maids for kind for tender nymphs the myrtle blooms and weaves her bending boughs in pleasing glooms perennial roses deck each purple veil and scents ambrosial breathe in every gale far hence are banished vapours spleen and tears tea scandal ivory teeth and languid airs no pug nor favourite cupid there enjoys the balmy kiss for which poor thyrsus dies formed to delight they use no foreign arms nor torturing whalebones pinch them into charms no conscious blushes there their cheeks inflame for those who feel no guilt can know no shame unfaded still their former charms they show around them pleasures wait and joys forever new but cruel virgins meet a severer fate expelled and exiled from the blissful seats to dismal realms and regions void of peace where furies ever howl and serpents hiss o'er the sad plains perpetual tempests sigh and poisonous vapours blackening all the sky with livid hue the fairest face o'ercast and every beauty withers at the blast where'er they fly their lovers ghosts pursue inflicting all those ills which once they knew 
vexation fury jealousy despair vex every eye and every bosom tear their foul deformities by all descried no maid to flatter and no paint to hide then melt ye fair while crowds around you sigh nor let disdain sit lowering in your eye with pity soften every awful grace and beauty smile auspicious in each face to ease their pains exert your milder power so shall you guiltless reign and all mankind adore end of section five